Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Patrick Jinks. Each week, through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and professional speaker. And now, here's Patrick. Happy spring, leaders. Welcome to episode 34 of the Leadership Window. I am Patrick Jinks, leadership and strategy coach and president of the Jinx Perspective. And we want to thank our new sponsor to this podcast, Leadership Systems Incorporated, or LSI, a wonderful leadership firm out of High Point, North Carolina, led by Dr. Jim Smith, a 30-year coach and trainer, Uh, as an adjunct with the Center for Creative Leadership. And uh, LSI is where I receive my coaching certification. And uh, we are proud to partner with them in so many different ways. And as sponsors of this program, LSI has a special website page for exclusively for listeners of this program. So here it is, write it down. It's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx leadershipsystems.com and it's a forward slash j-i-n-k-s visit leadershipsystems.com for all their stuff but if you visit leadershipsystems.com slash j-i-n-k-s you will see three specific opportunities and events in leadership development particularly in coaching training that they are offering deep discounts for leadership window podcast listeners uh, you might find that uh, one of their programs there is dated March 17th through uh, March 17 and 18, which obviously has already passed uh, if you're listening to this uh, on its release date, but they will be updating that date with the next time around. So these are uh, the leadership coaching practicum is a first step toward leadership coaching certification. So whether you are a leader inside an organization trying to become a better coach for your employees and your team, or whether you're exploring becoming a professional coach in your own business or with another company, this coaching training is invaluable. And again, this this training is being delivered by the people who um, have mandatory training for the coaches that come through CCL. So it's world-class stuff and they're giving you deep discounts on it. One of them's coming up April 20th, as a matter of fact, and that is a one day virtual introduction to leadership coaching from Dr. Smith. So that's coming up on April 20th. And so go to that website, leadershipsystems.com slash jinx for those deep discounts. All right. Thank you. LSI. I'm excited for our guest today, who's also in the studio with us here live. I love it. Uh, Dr. Brian Simmons, who I met, and I guess almost three years ago. Yeah, maybe, that's met a little right. Over two years ago now, maybe. Uh, met met uh, met you by phone, and, and I don't know how much you remember of the conversation, but I called because... Oh, I've just been considering, you know, do I go back and get my PhD or maybe a DBA or something, get a doctorate? And, you know, my wife's been telling me for years, you need to just go ahead, you know, go past your MBA, get the doctor. I'm like, nah, man, I don't have it in me anymore. This is too much work. And uh, especially a doctoral, people I've talked to that have been through doctoral programs are like, yeah, it's not like your bachelor's and your master's. So, um, so I called Dr. Simmons um, because I came, I think it was a Facebook ad maybe about CIU and Mm -hmm. and a a new program at CIU, uh, a PhD in organizational leadership 
100% online. And, uh, and, you know, so the first thing I do obviously is I go to CIU. I don't know much about, even though it's right here in my hometown of Columbia, uh, it's Columbia international university. And the first thing I do is I go on and I say, well, I want to know about their accreditation first. And I look and I see it's the same body that accredits Clemson and all you know, like it, it, it's, it's yep, full right. on rigorous academic, um, credibility. Mm-hmm. So I called Dr. Simmons, um, who's associate provost at CIU and head of the online studies and uh, really the person that's kind of um, spearheading exponential growth in uh, in the online studies program there at CIU. I think you went from, you know, uh, uh, double digits up well, into from the, 89 to over a thousand over a thousand in the last now. six years. Yeah. 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 And the newest one is this PhD in organizational leadership. I'm mm-hmm. part of, I think, the second cohort, which is overlapping with the first mm-hmm. one. And so I called you up and I said, uh, hey, I'm looking at this. Tell me more about it. And one of my, you might remember one of my questions was, tell me about the academic rigor and focus that comes at a faith-based organization. Because I, I wasn't interested in Bible school per se, right? I'm not looking to go into the ministry or you know, get a, a doctorate of divinity or theology or anything. This was in organizational leadership and I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just focused on church leadership. And the overview you gave me of the program and what to expect and what it gets me in line with what other schools are doing in terms of PhD and organizational leadership lit me up. I said, I'm in. (laughs) So uh, I appreciate that. But um, uh, Dr. Simmons is a a practitioner and I would say a student of his own work. I, you know, I, I, or, or the, the, uh, a student of leadership while he is also an instructor of leadership. Um, He's a humble servant and steward leader. And we're going to talk about those terms in a little bit with him and, and a leader in Christian education. I think the way I would look at it, Dr. Simmons, tell me if I'm wrong, but we've had, we've had leaders of faith on this show. Um, but you're not just a leader of faith. You are a faith leader. So you actually, you mean your career is in Christian education and leading people in faith leadership. Yeah. I say it this way. Christian education is God's call in my life. There you go. Okay. Very, that's, you can't get any more plain than that. That's Mm -hmm. good clarity. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to let him tell you more, but Dr. Simmons, really, it's, it's truly an honor to have you here. Thanks for accepting the invitation and coming on. I think Uh, you're welcome, Patrick. I've been looking forward to this. This this is going to be rich for our listeners um, because you're the real deal. And, you know, this is the, the name of this podcast is the leadership window. And we want people to see slightly different views each time maybe they look through the window i mean we've mm-hmm. had everyone from maxwell coaches on the show to nonprofit practitioners and executive directors in the social lens we've had consultants and speakers and authors and and uh you are someone i wanted partly because of the content that i'm familiar with because you've instructed some of the courses that i've mm-hmm. gone through but partly because uh I, your perspective from an academic point of view on leadership, Mm -hmm. I think is valuable to, to talk to, to talk about. So I'm going to shut up for a minute and let you just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Um, you know, tell us about your journey to this place. I think you talk about your career in the, in the framework of what you call seasons Mm -hmm. of your career. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about that and what's brought you here in your leadership journey. Mm -hmm. Well, a great question. And thank you for inviting me to be with you today. It's truly a joy to be be here with you, Patrick, and a joy to have you as a student in our PhD in organizational leadership degree program at Columbia International University. I'll be brief, but my career started out uh, actually going back as the first alum to teach at the Christian school that I graduated from. And uh, so I came back to that school and taught mathematics 
And uh, my wife and I had met in college. And so she came back to, to uh, be the cheerleading coach and teach um, music and PE. And, and so uh, it was really a joy for us to start our careers together. And then she decided a few years into that, as our kids started to come along, we have four children, to uh, be a stay-at-home mom. And uh, now she's Grammy. We have nine grandkids, mm-hmm. three more on the way. Wow. So uh, all since we've been here at CIU. So um, uh, my career started as a math teacher, and I did that um, first four or five years. And then uh, the ripe old age of 26, the head of the school that I was uh, at, my alma mater, asked me if I would be willing and interested in leading the elementary school. And so you can imagine uh, how excited, you know, teachers my age now were back then to have a 26 year old leading them as the elementary principal. And in fact, they didn't want to call me that because I was only 26. So I became the academic supervisor. <laughs> and uh, then at 29, I became the head of that school. And while I was there, uh, the school grew from 435 to uh, 630 students. And, and so um, Heritage Christian School in Indianapolis called me and uh, invited me to be the head of their school. At the time, that was 1180. While I was there, that school grew to uh, 1650 grew to become the largest private school in Indiana. And um, during that time, we built out about $17 million of buildings and added football and swimming and diving and orchestra. And one of the great privileges of my life um, was that uh, all four of my children graduated from Heritage Christian School. And um, it was just a fine school before I went there. And so that was just such a joy to lead the school that my four children graduated from. In fact, my daughter, Lindy, was the valedictorian her senior year. And um, as the kids were growing up, my wife and I would always talk to them about what we call I spy God moments, times where in just our normal lives, God shows up. And so the title of her valedictory address was I spy God. And I have that framed uh, in my office at CIU. Such an encouragement. Um, Well, so anyway, from from there, uh, because I'd had some experience in fundraising and uh, leadership, had finished my PhD at that point, EDD and Ed Leadership. Uh, I became the Vice President of Advancement at Indiana Wesleyan University. And as a part of that role, which later expanded to uh, Vice President of University Relations, um, I had a car and the gas card and senior leader, cabinet member. Um, but part of the package deal was that my kids could go there for free. And so three of my four children graduated from Indiana Wesleyan while I was there. And um, so that was just a gift from the Lord, right? And how many people could say that they participated in the commencements of their kids in high school and three of the four kids in college, right? Uh, yeah. And so um, that was a joy. And then from there, um, I, I became the president of the largest Christian school association in the world, the Association of Christian Schools International. And so during that time, my wife was my special assistant and I traveled the world. We visited Christian schools on every continent, but Antarctica. And uh, my youngest daughter, Aubrey, uh, still had the, in that deal, the ability to attend college for free. But, uh, at that point she could go to whatever college she wanted to Christian college. And so, um, she traded the snow of Indiana for the sand of West Palm beach and went to Palm beach Atlantic. And, um, after leading that, uh, international, we had 10, 10 offices in the United States, 18 offices around the world and, um, thousands of schools and membership. And so from that experience, I decided that I wanted to come back to the academic side of higher ed. So I came back to CIU to lead the PhD in educational leadership degree program and be a professor. And then about a year into that, uh, then President Bill Jones asked me to join his leadership team and uh, head up online studies. And th- as you said, that would that began the journey that we're on now of growth from 89 to over 1,000 
uh, students, the PhD in org leadership. Um, I created um, two, it'll be two years old in May and we have almost 250 students in that program now. Mm, yeah. And so th- that's just a part of the joy of my life and how God has led me to this point. And this is trivial maybe to a lot of our listeners, but did I read that you got your doctorate at Ball State? I did. Okay, that's right. Yeah. So David Letterman's school, David wasn't Letterman it? claimed yeah, to the, fame. The, the that's claim right. to fame, that's yeah. right. I know I know a few other people that went to Ball State. Great school. Um, yeah, that's, that is really an interesting journey. I, I always find it intriguing how people get to where they are right now. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have no idea, you know, what people have got the experience and the learning and the path, uh, like you said, and I, I'm, I'm fully with you. I think God shapes our path, particularly if, if we want him to, and we're looking for it, otherwise we shape our own path and we mm-hmm. pay whatever consequences that come with it, I suppose. But, um, let me, let me just make a, a quick in, endorsement for everyone. Cause I think this is important. A couple of, uh, a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, I did solo episodes of this podcast, back to back, two back to back episodes. And one of them was things I've learned about leadership in a doctoral program mm-hmm. in organizational leadership at CIE. And then the next episode was things I learned that I didn't learn in school. Mm-hmm. about leadership. Mm-hmm. So my sort of my own leadership lessons and things. I would love to hear from you. Um, well, b- b- before I go there, let me finish my endorsement. This has been a fantastic program well, for you. me. Uh, I told people I, I managed to get through uh, my bachelor's degree without learning a whole lot. I think uh, that, that's not true, but um, this is different kind of learning. I will, I will say a doctoral program is a different kind of learning. It's it's, you can't not learn mm-hmm. because if you're not learning, you truly are not making it through the program. It, mm-hmm. it, and so, and what's beautiful about it is you're studying something of great interest to you. So the, the, the impetus for learning is already there. The motivation's mm-hmm. already there. Mm-hmm. You don't have to motivate people to learn. The instructors are accessible and they're credible and they've got content but they don't have to motivate us That's right. to learn because we're in this because we're already motivated. That's right. I mean, I'm doing, I, I live my life in organizational leadership, coaching, organizational leaders. It's a PhD leaders. for people who are already leaders, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or and in my case, coaching leaders, yep. which, which in and of itself is also leadership. Mm-hmm. So, um, but here's what's unique about it for our listeners is that it's a 27 month PhD, <laughs> which I think is unusual. Um, and, and when I've told people that, they're like, what? How do you do it in 27 months? Man, it took me six years. We had to do all this coursework and then we started on our dissertation. And the model here, and I don't know how unique it is to CIU or if you borrowed it from somewhere, because I don't know a lot about how it works, but the model here is that you're doing the coursework and the dissertation on top of each other. So they, they're actually working side by side. And we can talk about some advantage, some pros and cons to that. As I, I, in my experience, I'm seeing um, it's great because everything applies. Everything is applicable and relevant. And what you're learning is related to the study and the dissertation. And it's all, it, again, it makes it more exciting. The downside is that um, you get to a particular place. You get to these points throughout the course where you go, ah, I wish we'd have had this back, you know, like, cause we're working on the dissertation and you got to kind of do it in a shorter time frame. So it's the same amount of work, but in a shorter period of time. So if speed is your thing, you don't want to spend six years on a PhD. This is great for you, but you got to have the, you be ready. You're going to need the bandwidth that it takes. And it's doable. I mean, I'm working full time as a, you know, a pretty thriving leadership coach, yeah. but it's, there's, it's, it's rigorous. Well, a couple of things about that. And thank you for that endorsement. And so 
Um, I spent I spent a couple of decades uh, teaching as an adjunct for Indiana Wesleyan University, where I served as the vice president. So my ideas for the PhD program started there. And then when I came to lead the PhD in Ed Leadership Program, it was more the at CIU. It was more the program that you described, where you did the coursework, you know, did the comps, did the uh, portfolio, and then went into the writing of the dissertation. And as I led that for three or four years, I, I, I noticed a couple of trends. One was that um, the writing of the dissertation for many students is such a different experience than taking courses. And it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. And there's more self-motivation involved with that than just following the syllabus, right? And so um, I thought, wouldn't it be something if I could design a program where we, as you said, where we blend the writing of the dissertation, we weave the writing of the dissertation in with the coursework. And so that's how I designed the program. I wove them together mm-hmm. to the point even where as you're taking research courses, for example, the research things you're working on are directly applicable to and aligned with the dissertation at that point in time where the students are in their own writing. That eliminates busy work. Yeah. And so I thought that was important. But then um, I, I thought it was important to do it totally online, as you've said. And so when, when students ask me, well, is it totally online or do we have to come you know, quarterly? Or So no, the first time we want you to come to campus is to receive your, your hood and your diploma, right? Uh, that's the first time we'd really love for you to come. Uh, it, it's totally online. But then I thought, where else do students struggle? I thought they struggle with APA 7th edition. And so I hired a team of stylists that peek in and help with suggestions about errors to correct them as, as the students are writing the dissertation. I've seen that team grow just since I've yeah. been in, in the program. We yeah. have... Uh, four now yeah. and a number more on a to be hired if there's more help needed than what we can provide with that service. And then another place where students struggle is with methodology. And so I hired a methodologist who mm. peeks in and helps. and Who is fantastic. And then the last piece, and this ties in with the coaching, right? Is I thought, wouldn't it be great if instead of meeting the chair of your dissertation committee and maybe getting some advice two weeks before you defend your proposal, which is chapters one through three of a five chapter dissertation, wouldn't it be great if you get a little help throughout the writing of the dissertation. So what we've done is we've put together a team of mentors and a student is assigned a mentor literally day one of their program of study and then they meet with that mentor every other week. And so I I describe writing the dissertation as like eating an elephant one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. And we try to do it six, seven pages at a time, have interaction. We've set up a a place in Canvas to do that. We train the mentors on how to in, in essence, be a dissertation coach. Yep. And so all of those components together do make it a very unique uh, PhD experience. Yeah. Well, it is a unique experience uh, from, you know, as I've, again, described it to others who have gone through other types of programs, but I love, it works perfect for me. It really does. And you're right. Uh, for those that don't, that may not know, when you talk about the stages of a dissertation, there's five chapters. Mm-hmm. Chapter one is what am I going to write about and why? Mm-hmm. What am I, stu- what am I going to study? The dissertation is all about you doing your own research. Mm-hmm. Um, and so chapter two is what we call the literature review, right? Where you go out and say, what else has already been studied and discovered for a time you become the leading expert on what's been written on that topic. I love that. Dr. Mary Beth Laval, uh, the methodologist Mm -hmm. has, she's, she's been so tremendous and accessible and generous with her time and content, but she said the same thing. There's a point in time where like, you're the expert, you are that you are the foremost, most current up-to-date expert. So the literature review is chapter two, probably the longest portion of the dissertation. Chapter three is, this is how I'm going to do my study. That's the methodology. And after chapter three, you do your first defense. You go before a committee and you defend what's called your proposal. So the first three chapters is, this is what I'm going to study. This is what's already been known. And this is how I'm going to add to it. And your committee looks at it, asks the questions, 
checks your style, looks at your stuff, makes whatever recommendations, gives you a score. You either pass or don't, which means you're, you are, um, you are, uh, cleared to conduct your actual study now. So then you go and you conduct your study. Most of ours are qualitative. And I think that has to do with the time window that we're putting this all in. The quantitative Mm -hmm. studies can often take a little bit longer, but Um, so at least in my case, I'm doing a qualitative study. Once you conduct your study, then you write chapter four, which is here's the results of the study. Yep. Uh, with no bias, no opinion and no recommendation. Then chapter five, you finally get to say a little something about what you think about things. And, uh, that's, that's, I will tell you, Dr. Simmons, that's been a struggle for me is keeping my bias out of this, Mm -hmm. but you guys don't allow it. You don't. And which I'm saying that in a good way, Mm -hmm. you're really, you're always checking my committee, Dr. Mary Beth, my, my, um, mentor, Dr. Hun, they're, they're always catching that and going, now be careful here. That might. Yep. That's right. And that's how we coach them. You might have a little bit of bias here. If you say it that way, you know, just stick with, stick with what the facts are. So in chapter five, you write your sort of conclusions, recommendations and perspective on it. And, uh, and then you go defend the final product. Yes, that's right. Which we're going to do, I think sometime between October and December of this year. And I'm just really excited about it. I I wanted to lay that out for people. I've, I've talked to people recently who have said, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe doing this. Uh, what do you think? Now, you guys also have a master's in organizational leadership, right? Yeah, we do. And all of these, you could see at ciu.edu, they're all listed out uh, with the, the courses and the, how they flow and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. With the PhD in org leadership, we have three starts a year in May, August, and January. But with the master's in organizational leadership, we have a number of other master's degree programs. We're working on a master's in healthcare administration, master's in education, master's in public administration, um, with uh, master's in healthcare administration, with all those various graduate level master's degrees. Those have a start, starts, uh, some, some of them as, as often as eight times a year. And um, some of those, can, and we have an MBA, some of those can, can be completed in as little as 15 months. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those are, basically starting pretty regularly like all the time yeah so i'm going to go back to the question i started a little while ago about what you learn in academics on the academic side of leadership Mm -hmm. and what you learn in the practice side or what i call in the trenches of leadership Mm -hmm. what would you say are some of the key differences because you've done both you Mm -hmm. you've lived you've lived leadership all your life and career and still are still living it while you're also um, both a student and a teacher of you know, leadership theory and, and, and research and things. What, what's, what's something you would say is the value of the academic side and, and something you would say is the value of the, of the practice. I'll give you two or three thoughts. The first thing I would, I would probably mention is that um, you cannot impart what you do not possess. Right. And so you've either got to have experience or book learning or both to have something to give. You know, uh, Howard Hendricks used to say, we need to teach from a constantly flowing stream and not a stagnant pond, right? Well, another Howard said, yeah. I never played the game. Yeah. You remember Howard Cussell, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't uh-huh. that his book? Yep. I never played mm-hmm. the game. You know, so he only had one side of the equation, right? He That's had right. this sort of theory side of sports and observing it and learning it, but he'd never actually played. And there's a big difference between commentators who have been on the field, right? That's right. And so then what I would say is that, and, and a lot of what I do now in my coaching and mentoring and things, uh, I tell my, uh, those that I mentor that um, I'm teaching you from the school of hard knocks. You know, look at the scars on my back. Everyone has a story. 
And my goal is to help you not to have to take the lashing to learn the lesson. Mm. And so I think there is a value in that. You don't get to that point until you're in the later seasons of, of life and the later seasons of your career, right? You not had to live enough to have the stories. And I'll say, Patrick, today, most of my stories about best practice are stories about worst practice. If that makes sense. It does. And, and so I call that the school of hard knocks. And so there is a school of hard knocks aspect to all of this. Um, but then there's also the idea that practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. Yeah. And so, you know, think of, think of your golf game. Why, why did Tiger right. Woods have a golf swing coach? Because one little adjustment could be the difference between winning and losing, right? And that's, that's Tiger Woods. Right. So, you know, I could go out and, and, and do the same swing on, on the same golf course for the same 18 holes the same way all summer and still slice the ball every single round of golf because nobody's helping me to correct my grip. Nobody's helping me to correct the angle that I'm taking the club up or the rate at which I'm right, raising the club or whatever. And, and so my point is that perfect practice makes perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to practice the right things for practice to make perfect. And so I think that's where the academics comes into play. And so what we're doing is we're learning about various theorists and theories and tried and true and tested principles of leadership that when we put them into practice do have the desired results. And so you've got this combination of real life experience with what theorists and theories have said uh, works. And and the last thing I'll offer is that then CIU again offers a unique experience which aligns well with how I see life, my mission. And that is, so at CIU, if you think of it this way, like in my right hand, if I take a Bible and I put it between my eyes and the textbook and in my left hand fully outstretched, I put the textbook. At CIU, we look at the principles of the textbook through the lens of scripture. Mm. And then you've, I'm sure you've experienced this. We, we talk then with our students in discussion forums and things about what principles align and which ones don't and why. And our perspective at CIU is that that's important to integrate faith and learning because all truth is God's truth. God is the author of truth. And so we're looking at the truth of the various theories through the lens of scripture. And then from a very pragmatic standpoint, the principles, the theorists, the, the theories of leadership that stand out and seem to work, I think are the ones that best align with the principles of scripture, which are truth. But, you know, you might not have uh, a well thought out system of situational leadership that Archie and Blanchard presented in the book of Proverbs, right? But what they've developed in their minds as they've applied logic to practice does align with the, the basic tenets of scripture, you know, and the fact that we are created in the image of God. Everybody's different. Everybody does different talents and abilities. So it makes sense then that the leader would have to adjust their leadership behavior to the readiness of the person they're leading for, for the task at hand. And so you see there's just this nice dovetailing of the truth of the word of God with the truth of that particular theory. And I'll tell you what I like about that from an experiential standpoint is, um, so the discussion boards are actually the academic side. And then there are devotional discussion boards where you overlay the scriptural context. And what I like about it is that CIU, these discussion boards or devotion boards are not an indoctrination of anything. It's not about doctrine. It's not about denomination. It's not about, it's not even about theology. It's a, it is truly a coaching experience online because we're posed with questions. How did Moses um, what, what, what elements of strategic planning, for example, did Moses apply in leading the, the children out of Israel and or out of Egypt? And we are free to share 
our own real view of that, even if it's a challenging one. I remember saying, I don't know that there was actually much strategy to it. You know, I mean, how many of us as leaders today get someone, get, get the voice of God to write on tablets, what we're supposed to do in our organizations, Uh, you know? And so we, we, we get to have those kind of critical thinking conversations through a scriptural lens, but without any, um, uh, without any expectation that you, you got to follow this certain path or you have to, you know, embrace this certain thing. It's about the lens that we're looking at leadership through. And, and, and particularly when we talk about concepts like steward leadership, which we'll get to in a second. So I, I just, I appreciate that aspect of the program. And it's when we talked that first time on the phone, it was what I was concerned about. I didn't want Bible school. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you have, by the way. I mean, there's also there well, sure. are you the, could do a degree in our seminary or exactly or study the Bible itself and the Greek and yeah. Hebrew and yeah. every jot and tittle. But you know, with this, like I've said, with our organizational leadership program and other master's degree programs, we are taking the best of the literature, the best of the theories, the Absolutely. best of the theorists, and we're having discussions about them through the lens of scripture. But we're, when students come out of our programs, they understand what the leading theorists say about the various topics of their degree programs. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. No doubt. Um, let me, let me, we've mentioned steward leadership a couple of times, and I found this to be one of the real fascinating aspects of this program so far and learnings enlightenments for me is the different leadership theories that, uh, again, these leading uh, thinkers and researchers and authors have, um, have posed there is steward leadership theory. There's servant leadership theory. There's agency leadership theory and a bunch of others, but I'm picking those three specifically and you're nodding your head cause you know where I'm going, right? Those three are really similar. They have a lot of similarities in for the, for the clients I serve and for probably most of the listeners to this podcast in the nonprofit sector, Many, many of the nonprofit leaders consider themselves to be or aspire to be servant leaders. I hear that term a lot. And this program really illuminated for me the difference between servant leadership and steward leadership, which I actually find to be a more elevating concept in the nonprofit sector because it includes servant leadership. But I'd like to hear your perspective on those three theories of leadership and a little bit about what each of them are and how they're different. Mm-hmm. Well, let's work backwards. Okay. So let's start with agency theory. It, the, the primary similarity between agency theory and steward leadership theory is that in agency theory, you have what's called a principal and you have an agent. Mm-hmm. And so in the business world, the principal would be the owner and the agent would be the person acting on behalf of the owner to bring about the desires of the, the principal for the business. The problem that comes up in agency theory is that there's a recognition that sometimes the agent is more tempted to work on behalf of their own self-interests than the interests of the owner. So the owner recognizing that um, then puts mechanisms in place that in essence keep the agent under their thumb. And the primary way that you see that in business, I think, is through um, compensation. And so uh, with rewards, i.e., great pay for a great job, the owner is able to exert their will on the principal who might otherwise be tempted to kind of go his own way for his own best interests. Now, when you step away from that and take a, a, a look at servant leadership, I think that most people who understand the Bible and the word of God and have read the gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would say that Jesus was a servant leader. 
You know, we read stories about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Jesus serving others. And so clearly, Jesus was a servant leader. And I think that um, just from an altruistic perspective, many of us would aspire to be servant leaders, right? We would say that we find meaning and purpose in our lives when we give out of ourselves to serve others, when we we think about the best interests of others. And there is a, a rewarding aspect to that, right? In servant leadership, and the leading theorist was uh, Robert Greenleaf, he wrote about this and he said, at the end of the day, the measure of whether or not you're successful as an effective servant leader is the degree to which you serve those horizontally that your life is intending to serve. And that is good. That is a good thing. Servant leadership adds another dimension. Steward leadership adds to servant leadership the idea that we love and serve God, i.e. the vertical dimension, as we love and serve others, the horizontal dimension. And so uh, the best way, I think, to explain steward leadership is um, to think about Psalm uh, 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. So as a steward, we're entrusted by the master, God, with time, treasure, talent, and relationships. The most precious is relationships. And and so think of it this way. We have various stewardship realms that we're responsible for. So for me, uh, CIU, the online study is part of what we do. Uh, Senior leader at CIU, we've talked about that. A husband, uh, 40 years, May 30th, Bonnie. Uh, Nine uh, nine grandchildren, soon to be 12. Uh, Four children, all married. I'm on the clubhouse committee in my neighborhood. You know, why? I want to serve my neighbors. But if you think about your vocational realms, those parallel our stewardship roles. So what are my roles? Husband, father, grandfather, professor, senior leader at CIU, uh, elder at Radius Church. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. And so then as a steward leader, I'm trying to fulfill God's purposes for all that he has entrusted to my care. And I think The best way up is down on our knees. And so I try to begin every day with this prayer. So Lord, today, with all that you've entrusted in my care, the time, treasure, talent, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, with those that I'll be touching today, help me to fulfill your purposes in each of those realms today. And so that really then does differentiate steward leadership from servant leadership. Uh, Kent Wilson, in one of our textbooks that we use in the course on steward leadership, says it best, and he says, um, in the Bible, all stewards are servants, but not all servants are stewards. Right, and and then as we articulate that, as I as I explain that, I say, and the difference is the attitude of the heart. So the servant leadership model, in and of itself, that construct does not have the vertical dimension. It doesn't have I'm going to love and serve God by loving and serving others. Stewardship adds that, and at the end of the day, um, the Bible teaches us one day we will give an account for how we live our lives. And to the best advice point, I would say. Probably a good idea to think about what you're going to say on that day before that day occurs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's be prepared. Let's not get caught off guard on that one. Um, ah, this is all so well said. And again, in the, in the mainstream academic view of steward leadership, it's still about, so in agency leadership, and just tell me if I have this straight, cause I think I have an understanding of it in agency theory. It's, it's um, principal and agent. In steward, it's owner and steward. So again, very similar. Here's what I ran into not long after taking the steward leadership 
some going through some of the steward leadership and servant leadership stuff at CIU is I was coaching an executive, a nonprofit executive, um, a faith, a very faith centered nonprofit executive in this case, who kept talking about servant leadership and I'm a servant leader. And, and so we were talking about one of her staff people that she knew was underperforming consistently and probably did not have the capacity to perform where she really needed to perform. And she knew she needed to terminate this employee. It just wasn't working, but she couldn't. And the reason she couldn't is because the servant leadership value in her wouldn't let her. This is from her, her construct of it, right? Is that she felt like she wouldn't be serving that individual. Like I have to give, I have to go over and above and really just keep working and keep working to try to get them there. Or I don't feel like I'm serving them as a leader. And it dawned on me during the conversation, I had, having just gone through some of this stuff, is that when you think of it rather through the lens of steward leadership, uh, and I, I read this somewhere, I won't, I won't paraphrase it exactly correct, but in servant leadership, it's about serving the individuals, every individual. And at steward leadership, it's, it's primarily about serving the owner. And, and you can still apply a servant leadership mentality with those that you're serving. So if you're serving the owner, I asked her, I said, who owns your organization? She said, well, the board. And I said, well, your board governs your organization. Who owns it? Like who is literally the owner of the organization? And we got to talking about that. And well, it's kind of the community at large. We're a 501c3 tax exempt. So there's this legal, you know, yes. Now, who, who, who would you consider then to be the chief steward? Well, that's me. So, well, do you report to anybody? Well, I report to the board. Aren't they the chief steward? Well, yeah, I guess you're right. Okay, stay with me here. And just, I walked through this and I said, what, what, what is required of a steward? And we walked through the parable of the talents in the Bible, right? The, 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 the yep. three people that the master gave talents to and left and yep. said, and when he came back and I don't remember the numbers, but five, three and one, five, three and one. So, uh, to, to one, he gave, uh, talents to all of them. He gave talents. One came back and said, I grew him from this to this. Mm -hmm. Well done. You know, you've been faithful over little. I'm going to make you faithful over much. I'm going to make you responsible for more. And then another one came and said, I grew it by this much. Great. The other one said, I protected mine. I saved it. I still have it. I buried it. It's safe. And he got rebuked. And so I asked this leader, I said, why do you think he got rebuked? So, well, because he didn't grow it. I said, so as a steward, what is your job for the organization you're serving? And we went through that well it's to grow it and make it thrive and I said now what if something is holding you back from that growth like an underperforming staff person is it your responsibility as a steward to remove those obstacles as needed or to make the adjust even the difficult choices it complete she was in tears I mean it just completely changed uh, her perspective. And I, I, uh, I actually recommended Kent Wilson's book to her as well yeah, as sure. uh, Scott Rodens and others. And, yep. and she got him and she read him. And the next time we were talking, she goes, I have a whole, I had this all wrong. Like you actually are serving even when you're making some of the tough decisions that at the time I'm actually serving the individual too, because right now they're set up to fail. Yeah, that's right. I was going to add that, that when you look at that and you, you, understand the sovereignty of God over all of this with those that he's created in his image, which is everyone, right? And that this person, then how terrible would that be to be in a, in a situation as an employee where in, in, in the back of your mind, you kind of knew and in your heart, you kind of That's knew right. that you weren't uh, 
in a position where you could thrive and you'd been helped, wasn't working. Well, if you interject into this, the sovereignty of God perspective, God wants that person to live out their mission in a way that's effective in a place that they can be most effective. And so when we have that perspective and, and of course we do this in a kind way, we help, we give yeah. a runway for, you know, uh, finances, et cetera, to help a person to the next point. But how many times as leaders have you and I both had a situation in organizations we've led where we've dealt with kindly and graciously with employees, but then uh, while, and not all of them, of course, but then sometimes they'll come back and say, well, thank you for, that's the best thing that's happened to me in my career. Right. And while we're talking about steward agency, uh, servant leadership theory, and there are many others, one of our latest courses in uh, building effective organizations has an art. Uh, one of our readings was an article by Gary Uckel. who's a, prolific writer and, and researcher in, in, in the business. And it was so far, by the way, the best article in the whole program. I don't know why it hit me the way it did. It just, it like, it, it had so many great things in it. So I immediately went to Amazon and got two of his books. One of them is a 560 page textbook that's not a part of our studies, but I just had to have it. Leadership in Organizations by Gary Uckel and William Gardner. And then I bought Gary Uckel's other book called Flexible Leadership, which is what this article was about. And the article, in the article, he introduced a term, uh, introduced to me anyway, a term I hadn't heard yet, the ambidexterity of leadership, where the whole idea of flexible leadership is that a leader has to really kind of be able to move in and around lots of different theories and practices depending on context. That there are times when you've really got to apply the management skill and you got to you you have to have your focus on the systems and the processes. There are other times when you have to have your focus and your bandwidth spent on the people relationship, the human capital of the organization. Then there are times when you have to have the external stakeholder focus and the and so uh, that concept in reinforces for me, affirms for me what I've always believed and I think experienced about leadership is there's not this is the kind of leader you got to be, right? There's transformational leadership theory. There's all these, there's this practice, uh, there's facilitative leadership and admin. There's not really just one single way to do this right. It's the art of being able to apply the various forms of influence at the time. Would you agree? Well, so I, how I explain that, yes, I would agree. How I would explain that is, um, and this dates me, but going back years, you know, when I was a child, um, we didn't have a color television. And so on Thursday nights, I'd go across the street to Brenda and Linda's to watch Batman because they had, they had color, a color television, right? And I don't know if, if y'all remember the, that and show Batman or not. Batman color was awesome. Yeah, there you go. I don't know if people remember that show, but at the end, there was always this like, bang, squash, a fight. And yeah. then all of a sudden, Batman and Robin are in some predicament. You know, and then they'll say, now come back. What's going to happen to the Cape Crusader and the boy wonder come back next week. And it was like, they're on this spit, you know, over a flame and the, they're tied to it. And the Joker's turning them, roasting them alive or whatever <laughs> the case might be. And they always got out of it the same way. It was always like Batman would reach into his bat belt. He'd pull out bat dust or he'd pull out the bat boomerang or whatever mm. the case might be. See these, the understanding of the principles of these different leadership theories are the leader's bat belt. And we, we have different things we pull out that help us in different situations with different people at different times. Yeah. And, and so that's how I see that. And I think that's mm. very consistent with the idea that you're, you're articulating here. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Batman's always a great analogy. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Simmons, from the various you know, lenses you look through in leadership, one of the things that I... Uh, 
appreciate about this program and the academics of leadership is you get to see sort of the evolution of thinking in the top thinkers, you know, going back to, you know, Socrates for, you know, all the way through the latest, you know, what John Maxwell's writing and thinking about and researching. So, um, you look at some of that and see that, yeah, maybe that's an outdated concept, right? We, we don't really lead like that anymore. That kind of played out. What do you see as the current trends or maybe next trends or where the trends are headed in terms of leadership, mm-hmm. good or bad? Mm-hmm. Well, so like you uh, in the coaching that I do, um, and because I'm an academic, I like to pick books that you know have spoken to me and then share those with those that I love and those mm-hmm. that I mentor. Yeah. Right. So I'm in the rhythm now of giving my two son-in-laws and my sons a book for Christmas with the promise to uh, meet with them every other week and talk through with them the principles of those books. Mm-hmm. So today, one of the, my joys was from uh, 10 to 11, my oldest son, Jared, and I talked through uh, chapters uh, seven and eight of a book I'm using right now called Turn the Ship Around by a guy named Marquette. And it's about how uh, he helped a submarine in the Navy to move from a leader follower paradigm to a leader leader paradigm. And it, there's just so much good in that book. So that would be a current thing that I'm working on that um, I think one of those evolutions that you're talking about is that I think that today there's more of a spirit and an understanding uh, well, in fact, we had John Maxwell with us this last Tuesday at CIU. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he said, a great analogy he used was, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you can't do that alone. You've got to have the Sherpas. You've got to have the four base camps. You've got to acclimate. You've got to go up and down and up and down and then a little higher up and down, up and down, et cetera. And, and even if by chance you were to get up there on, on your own, you'd not get back down alive, right? And so the idea is if we're going to, take upon ourselves large leadership tasks that really are significant, then that's the Mount Everest. And we have to develop a team. I think there's more of an understanding today than there was 10 or 15 years ago that while along with the team idea, then that does have a bearing on how we lead effectively. And it doesn't make sense to me to have a team if you're not leading collaboratively. And so then the idea of synergy kicks in there, right? That two plus two is 10. And I think the old idea was dress like I dress if you want to be in my shoes one day or think how I think. I think the new, the new, the new uh, way of looking at things is as this has evolved, no, uh, we're going to value everybody's experience and perspective on this team. We're going we're gonna to build this team with diversity, diversity of thought, so that, and then we're going to, to develop our team in such a way that everybody's input matters and is valued. And then together, collaboratively, we're going to come out with the best way forward. And, and we're going to develop leaders on our teams. We're all leaders. We're going to lead collaboratively. We're going to develop a shared vision, as Kelsey and Pauser said. And, and those kinds of principles, where I think even as you go back 20, 30 years, seemed to me that there was more of an autocratic you know, kind of leadership. The people that kind of rose to the top were do it my way. And I just had this conversation with uh, one of the young men I coach at breakfast two mornings ago. And when we were done, we walked into our conversation about leadership. And I took a, um, if you could picture this, I took a cylindrical uh, uh, decanter that had sugar in it. And then I took a ketchup that had, it was tapered a little at the top, not a lot. 
And then I took one of the hot sauce things that was tapered really tightly to the top. And I said, so if you're going to lead autocratically, here's the problem. The organization is going to be bound by your, your level of uh, ability. And so if, if, you're, if, if you're not as gifted as others, then you're going to be that tight constriction around the effectiveness of the organization mm-hmm. where if you're more like the, 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 the ketchup, maybe not as constricted, but still constricted, the only way you can lead cylindrically where there's no constriction, I think, is if you lead collaboratively with a team because everybody has limitations. And so I think that explains why some people might autocratically lead, let's say, a church of 100. But if you're going to lead a church of 10,000, you've got to get other people involved and, and work through them and with them to minister to that many people. And I think we're starting to see that more than maybe we did even as recently as 15 or 20 years ago. And this is resonating with me. I, th- I think I'm seeing it too. Um, and I think I'm actually experiencing it personally. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, I, I mean, I, got, I have plenty of ego. And, and I have a performance nature about myself and I have a, I have a very, um, I'm very confident and I feel, you know, this is the direction, like, you know, follow me. I'm, uh, this is leadership and I'm, I'm still learning and have learned a lot, you know, through the years about how, uh, that ego, while it can, while it can fuel some things and it can carry some things, even in, even in transformational leadership theory, for example, the charisma or, or, you know, clear line of thinking, it also is, it is constricting. Right. And, um, so I think I'm learning that a lot. It's a lot about ego, but it's also a lot. I don't know. I don't know if it's ego. When people hear that, they think bad, right? Arrogant. When you, even when you say autocratic, you, there's this negative connotation to it. I don't think it's always out of a negativity. I think sometimes it's out of, I see this so clearly in my head. I can't imagine why you can't see it or why you wouldn't embrace it. And it comes out of, I think, a good place. Well, one of the things that's so interesting about this turn the ship around is there's this culture in the Navy that once your command is over, it really doesn't matter what happens on that ship, the next command, it's up to that person, right? And so by developing the leader leader mentality on this submarine, and hence the title of the book, Turn the Ship Around, he not only developed the, one of the worst performing ships in the Navy to the best performing, but he also set it up to continue to be best performing when the next leader took over. And uh, eight or nine of his uh, uh, key people then went from that submarine to lead their own ships. Yeah. Much better model of leadership, right? Because we have to think about sustainability. What's going to happen to the organization right. when we're gone? And I hear that a lot too from my clients, succession and continuity. And this is where the work of leaders developing other leaders mm-hmm. comes into play. And I think the level a lot of leaders get stuck at is leaders developing performers. Mm-hmm. That's great. But yeah, you have to develop other leaders as well. But this ego thing, I, I, don't, I don't know. This is, it just made me think of a, of a story I heard a long time ago about a, a corporate executive who was in a high rise building with a, with a nice office view. And he had a new employee who was a rookie trying to kind of find his way and, you know, <clears throat> jockey for position. And, and the, uh, the corporate leader said, son, come on, come over here. Come, come take a look at the window with me. And they walked over to the window and he says, look, look across about, about four blocks over. You see that golf club, see the nice country club there. And you can see the 18 holes. You can kind of see most of the fairways. And can you see that from here? He goes, yeah, I see it. He goes, all right, look, look down, look down there in the parking lot. You see, there's a Porsche and a, and a Lexus and a Cadillac. And you see those cars down there? He says, yep. Yeah. Okay. Now look, look over to the right. You see the Marina. see that, see that big yacht over there? He says, yeah, I see it. He goes, if you play your cards right and you do your job really well, 
one day that will all be mine. (laughs) (laughs) And that, you know, that's kind of how, maybe that's a little old school leadership, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's command and control. It's all about hierarchy. It's all about gain, maybe some self-interest in there as you talked about. And yeah, I, I see a lot, maybe it's the sector I work in, you know, a lot of the leaders that I'm working with, they, they truly are there because they want to make a difference. And so mm-hmm. I am seeing more facilitative leadership and um, you know, here's something I'm seeing a lot when I'm working with an organization who's working on strategic planning is they want to hear from everybody. Mm-hmm. Like I can build, I, I've got, the capability to sit and build a strategic plan. I got enough vision and enough organizational knowledge and knowing where this needs to go. I can create a plan and it'll, and it'll have really, really good stuff in it. But if I haven't involved and engaged the various stakeholders at various levels of the organization at some level in, in some sense of autonomy and decision-making and influence before long, I'll, I'll kind of be by myself, won't I? <laughs> yeah, right. I that. mean, th- that's a key principle of leadership, right? As we involve those in the plan, then the areas of the plan that are up to them have a much better chance of being accomplished, right? Because this was part of their thinking and putting these thoughts together. And um, so I, I think that, that, that that's something I see as a trend. And I think that's a good trend. Both of us work with boards and have been on boards Um what I'd love to hear your perspective on the intersection between governance, which I know you spend a lot of time on and leadership. Um, my, my theory is that, or my philosophy or belief is that the board is not just a governing body. They are a leadership body. I mean, they, the CEO reports to them. They're out in the community. They've got their the eyes and ears. And so there's gotta be, they, they, we're asking them to bear, bring their influence to the table, which is leadership. Um, where are you seeing are the struggles and maybe some of the successes in intersecting governance with leadership on mm-hmm. boards? I'm going to take a step back just for a minute, make a tie back to steward leadership. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what's the definition of a steward leader? One whom has been given a trust. What's a synonym for a board member? A trustee. Trustee. Yeah. What's the definition of a trustee? One whom has been given a trust. A steward. And so. There's no better way to serve as a steward leader than as a board member, right? That's a great way to serve as a student steward leader. So I think that's an important tie-in to the biblical construct of steward leadership. Now, once we've established that, then, and I totally agree with what you you said, Patrick, that um, my favorite book on, on board leadership is called Governance is Leadership by Chait, Ryan, and Taylor. I love it too. It's C-H-A-I-T and Ryan, R-Y-A-N, and Taylor. And in that book, they articulate um, uh, the overarching concept well that um, when you choose board members, who do you choose? Who populates the seats in all of the boards across the country? Just a bunch of followers, right, who have no views, no ideas, no, 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 not, no. They're all leaders. They're all leaders. Now, what job description have you seen for a head search of any organization for profit or otherwise that says, so we're trying to find someone that's not wired as a leader at all. We don't want that. Now everybody wants what a strong leader. So you've got the CEO who's a strong leader and you've got the board populated by strong leaders. And so then the question becomes in whatever the organization, whether it's a church or a school or a for-profit doesn't matter. The question is who leads what? And so 
the 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 main thing I do as I work with boards is I try to walk them through an understanding of the role of a board member up and against the role of the head of the organization. And then foundational principles like the head of the organization is the only employee of the board. Every other employee works for the head of the organization, especially in the nonprofit world. And and where problems come in, generally will go back to role confusion, Mm -hmm. lack of clarity on who does what. So take strategic planning, for example. Um, I just had a conversation this morning with someone who was on an accreditation visit to a school. I won't name the school or mention the school or even the organization, but uh, they ask a a board member in the accreditation visit, so who writes the strategic plan of the school? And the board member said, well, we do, where the board does. And the accrediting leader of the accrediting body looked at them and said, you want to retry that answer to that? Then they turned to the head of school. Well, who, who's responsible for writing the strategic plan of your school? And the, the, the head of school turned awkwardly to the board member and said, well, it's, I think it's kind of me that's the one that's supposed to do that. Well, see, in my view, it's the head of the organization that writes the plan. But now back to Shate, Ryan, and Taylor, the board needs to think strategically about the plan. That's different, right? It's a different role. So Jay Ryan and Taylor, fiduciary, strategic, and generative leadership, that is governance as leadership. As leadership. Yeah. And it recognizes that governance is a leadership function. But then with that one example of strategic plan, the board doesn't write the plan. They don't know enough to write the plan. They're not 40 hours a week in the organization knowing what the main initiatives need to be and so on and so forth. But they do need to think strategically about the plan and ask questions about opportunity cost. Is this an initiative that we're trying to do at the right time? Do we have the ability to support all eight of these initiatives or do we need five? Those kinds of things. We are on an identical page there. Um, my, my work with strategic planning with organizations consists of what I call a continuum. And what I tell organizations is it, you know, I'll get a phone call. Hey, can you come, can you come do our strategic plan? Right. That's the first thing. Can you come do our strategic plan? Uh, it's, it's from, uh, we're, our board is coming together on April 3rd from 10 to two, right? We're doing a retreat and we're going to do our strategic plan. And I like, okay, where do I start with this? Right. First of all, no, I'm not going to do your strategic plan. Um, Second of all, neither are you in four hours with a group of volunteers that spend an average of six hours a year with you. That's right. So it doesn't start at strategic planning. There's a step before that. Really? What's that? And so our first stage in the continuum is strategic direction setting. And that's the board role. Where are we even going? What are our intentions? What are the imperatives for the organization? Then we take the staff leadership through this phase two, which is the strategic planning. And the reason we do it with staff leadership, we used to do it with boards. We used to do, you know, the full day retreat, right? You do everything in one day. You do the SWOT analysis. You write a mission statement. You rewrite a vision statement. You break out into groups and do some strategies and you're done. It's time to go. There There you go. You have your strategic plan. And rarely does it get executed. That's right. So that's phase two. And then I tell them, but it also doesn't end at strategic planning. No, not only does it not start there, it doesn't end there. You got to, now you have to operationalize it. That's it's, right. it's still by definition at a strategic level. It's a strategic plan. So you walk out going, this is great. But you walk out going, okay, so who, what am I going and doing? Like, what's my work? What's your work? Who's, who's doing what? Like you said, who's leading what? So I love that you just said that that's, that's been sort of the whole construct of what we're doing with strategic planning with our clients, which is we don't do any more of the one day strategic plan board retreat 
kind of, this is your organization as no more than you're looking at this, considering the future of your organization, can't, can't phone it in. Yep. It's top, it's not top down or bottom up. It's top down and bottom up. It should be participatory, right? It's not on off. It should be ongoing. And you know, the best book I've, I've read that we use as a textbook in the strategic planning course in your PhD or leadership is um, called the four disciplines of execution Mm -hmm. by um, Chesney and Covey. And I, I do believe that they've, they've nailed it in terms of how to put a strategic plan into motion yeah. and who's responsible for what and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, man. So I don't, I like, I don't know where to go next with you. We, we, I'm going to have to have you back. You're going to have to, well, be, lo- oh, that's fine. I'd love to do that. Uh, going to have to do that. I, I would love to ask you, there's a couple of questions I like to ask all my guests. And one is um, who I'd love to hear stories of maybe one or two leaders in your early life or career that have, uh, that you would credit with helping shape your current view on leadership and you know some of the ones that that i would have were even bad leaders right we learn we learn from them too but um i, I just love to hear the stories about one or two people that, well, that i would say that um because of the way i'm wired i'm always looking at things from a leadership perspective or an organizational perspective and so um, i literally will take notes about how the people that lead me or that i lead with lead Right. Um, but I'll tell you just one story. So when I was vice president of university relations at Indiana Wesleyan university, our cabinet met with the president once a week. And, um, I was relatively young when I first went into that role. And, um, there was a seasoned chief of staff by the name of Larry Lindsay, who had spent 10 years, uh, with Zig Ziglar as his vice president and, uh, had a rich leadership background. And, on his own initiative, every once in a while, he'd knock on my door and he'd say, do you have a minute? And I'd always invite him in and he would say, you know, and we'd get around to him saying to me, well, when you did this or you did that in that meeting, did you notice how people perceived that? And here's something you might have done that might have been a little better received or here's what they, here's the word you use, but here's what they heard, that kind of thing. Yeah, It was just invaluable to me. And we became really good friends, even though he was old enough to be my father. So fast forward. So now in my role as a senior leader at CIU, one of one of the conversations we had one day in the cabinet meeting with our president, Dr. Mark Smith, who by the way is a phenomenal leader. Uh, God is really blessing his leadership. We're, we're happy to have him at CIU. Uh, but he challenged all of us and he said, uh, you, all need, you all need a mentor. Well, I mentor a lot of people, you know, and I have a, I have a, a close friend, just iron on iron, the two of us walking together, a lifetime friend who's kind of my, you know, so we, in other words, we need a Timothy, we need a, a Barnabas that encourages us. We encourage one another on a lateral stage, but then we also need a Paul, right? And I had been praying about that for, actually before the president said that to us, before President Smith challenged us to have a mentor, I had been praying about that. I'd pr- I've been praying, Lord, I feel like I'm giving out so much to those that I mentor, encouraged by my friend, I feel, I'm feeling a void. I'm feeling like I don't have somebody mentoring me. I don't have somebody coaching me. And I'd been praying about that for a while. And by, by a while, Patrick, I would say maybe months, so several months. I was walking into an, a meeting at CIU one day and my phone rang and it was Larry Lindsay. We hadn't talked for 20 years. And, oh, Brian, he said, I, I cheeked out. I'm sorry, I called you by accident. I'll, I'll, I'll touch bases with you tomorrow. Oh. Okay, so, okay, no problem. So, you know, I didn't think much of it. 
That next morning, I get an email from Larry. And this is how Larry is wired. He said, Brian, so I could just have dismissed that and thought, what a coincidence that I happened to call you by accident last night. But as I was thinking about it this evening before I went to bed, I was thinking maybe there was more to it than that. Maybe God was prompting me to reach back to you. And so I I said to him, Larry, I've been praying that God would give me a mentor. I said, would you be my mentor? Would you come into my life and be that for me? He's uh, this just this past week celebrating like his eighty fourth birthday, and he's been mentoring me now for two and a half years. And I just have to say, what a rich, joy filled experience that is for me. And he's one of those ones where I don't get the Facebook like happy birthday friend. I get, you know three sentences with an encouragement from scripture Wow! or when I talk to him about something, we'll have a rich conversation and he'll say, well, you know, Brian, uh, I, I wrote a chapter in a book about that and he'll send it to me or uh, I've done a lecture on that. I'll send you the PowerPoint. How valuable is that? That's mentoring. That's mentoring. That's mentoring. Yeah. And there's a difference between coaching and mentoring. You know, that, that I, I find that mentor, that mentor to be someone who's kind of gone ahead has some experience, got some wisdom built up, you know, and things and can share more of the perspective. Whereas a coach is more about the kind of challenging you and pulling out your best thinking. And it sounds like he actually does serves him in both of those. Yeah. And I love him for it. That's tremendous. What a great, what a great story. Um, so I have one more question for you and you alluded to a minute ago, might've, might've gotten ahead just a little bit. So you'll have to go back and reiterate it, but if you had, you know, the last 20 seconds of this show to tell all of our leaders what you believe to be the number one tenet of leadership, what would you say? So I would say the number one tenet of leadership is to see your leadership role, my leadership role as a, as a steward leader, and to recognize that um, God created me. He created me in his image. He's made a way for me to to have my sin forgiven so that I can spend eternity with him. And that is through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so the, the best advice I could give is that in from my, my view, my vantage point, life has its richest and fullest meaning when I try to live every day, fulfilling the purposes of the master for all that he's entrusted to my care. And here's the best advice. So one day we will stand before our creator, God, And he will ask us a question. So what did you do with all of that which I entrusted to your care so generously, so graciously? What did you do with your talents? And my best advice would be to think through the answer to that question before that day occurs. Because here's the good news. So there's still time. So what I'd encourage your listeners to do is to take out a piece of paper and write out their stewardship roles. For me, I've already said, father, grandfather, husband, community leader, CIU leader, Radius Church elder. Just list them all out. And then on a piece of paper, just on a Likert scale, one to 10, give yourself a score. And then go sit by Lake Murray, go sit by a tr- under a tree and look at those scores in those various stewardship realms, those, those stewardship roles, and say now, why did I give myself that score? Am I happy with that score? And if you are, say, great, keep going, keep doing that. That's so good. But if you're not, then pray to God and say, God, what would I need to do to get that four to a six or that six to an eight? And that's the, that's the best advice. That that's I great like advice. That. Great advice. That, that what, what, what would it take to get to the next number is a tool that we use a lot in, in our coaching environments. A great way to think about things. 
Um, Brian, I really do appreciate this. This has been extremely rich and valuable. Um, I want to come back to CIU uh, 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 for a second. For the leaders out there who have been considering advancing their education and particularly ones that are intrigued by the online opportunity, particularly in today's environment, right? Um, what, what's sort of a, a, a next step? I mean, obviously go to, I mean, it's really easy. Go to CIU.edu and then there's a link up at the top for online studies and there it's all there. But from a timing standpoint, what would you say is coming up next? And, and, and let me ask you this too. I'd like you to answer that, but I'd also like to answer you this. I meant, I meant to ask this a while ago. What would you say to a, a leader out there, particularly a nonprofit leader, um, since that's primarily our lens, who may even have a lot of experience in nonprofit leadership, but never did this? What would be the value to them? Why might they consider coming and getting their doctorate degree, for example, in an organizational leadership program or something like that? Uh, that their, you know, their experience or whatever, you know, they go to all kinds of conferences and read books, but what, what will this bring them? So kind of what would be that value for that leader to do it? And, um, and what would be a next step in terms of timing at CIU? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. You know, in terms of what you would learn at CIU, what we've tried to do with all of our online master's degree programs and doctoral programs is we tried to make them very practical. And so, for example, with the PhD in organizational leadership, as you well know, we have a course on strategic planning. We have a course on board governance. We have a course on being an effective leader. We have a course on earmarks of effective organizations. And we use some of the best textbooks and best theorists, and in my view, of course, I designed the program, but that I think are out there, right? And, and so we try to give very practical tools to leaders to help them to be more effective. That's one aspect. Another aspect is that because these programs attract leaders, iron sharpens iron. And so a lot of the learning, as I'm sure you would attest, is with the, the diversity of thought within each of those cohorts. They're all cohort-based. You stay with your cohort through the entire program. You actually develop relationships with those cohort members, and they're purposely chosen as they apply in the application process to be students at CIU uh, to, to some point about their diversity and how that cohort rounds out to really help everyone to have a really good and rich learning experience. And the last thing I would say, just as an academic is, so, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative way at all, but you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so that's the truth. So I, I really do think that there is an aspect to that of learning. And some people say, well, why would I need that diploma on my wall to be able to be a leader of whatever? And the answer is you don't. But you might need the knowledge that you, you, you gained along the way in earning that diploma to be an effective leader. Right. And so that's how I see the play. We already talked about this a little bit, the, the interplay of the theory with the day to day mm -hmm. work of the leader. CIU.edu, we have recruiters available. When you submit an email or a name and a phone number, uh, we'll get back with you in a reasonable amount of time and we'll have somebody who will talk to you about what degree program we have at CIU that might be the best for you with the goals and aspirations that you have. But uh, we've in the last uh, four or five years, what's resulted in that phenomenal growth is I've been involved in developing uh, 26 new degree programs online, and, and we've added over 260 online courses. And so CIU really is in a growth mode. And we're doing that because we want to have a positive impact in our community here in Columbia and beyond in preparing leaders that will understand how best to lead in God's eyes. Wow. Fantastic. And I, you know, there's something else that came to mind as you were thinking many of the organizations I've worked with on strategic planning, uh, have in their strategic intention framework, the idea of being a thought leadership organization. 
So if I'm, if I'm dealing with housing, for example, I want to be a thought leader in housing. I want to, I want to be someone that, that the media goes to, that policymakers go to, that donors go to and say, Hey, what do you think about this you know, new project over here? Or how are we going to reduce homelessness in our community? And what are the trends and the issues that you're seeing? Having that, having that, um, that PhD, I think elevates the ability to, oh, to sort of position yourself as a thought leader totally in agree. whatever the industry And is. what we've done with our PhD program, as well as all of our master's and, and undergrad online programs in the School of Online Studies, uh, online studies is that we have purposefully chosen those who have distinguished themselves in their careers as leaders in those areas. So, for example, um, uh, Dr. John Thompson is our leader of our uh, uh, masters in, in uh, public administration. Well, he is a, a, an administrator in Richland dealing with COVID, right? Um, our masters in public administration uh, leader is Terf- Dr. Tara Phelps Jones. She served at the Pentagon. And so we're able to pull in these leaders who love the Lord, who are all, have also distinguished themselves uh, in their various careers. Again, the marriage of the the theory and the practical boots on the ground day to day. This is how you do this. Yeah. Well, folks, I just want to give again, that personal endorsement of the program. I'm not done with it yet, but I'm about to be, and I have just gained tremendous value out of it to, to this point. And if I didn't endorse it and uh, didn't feel confident, I, I wouldn't have had Dr. Simmons come on the program. That's, I just knew that was something we needed to do. And uh, Good to be with you, Patrick. Thank I'm, you for the invitation. I'm so grateful. So thank you again. And again, ciu.edu. And don't forget Leadership Systems Incorporated as a sponsor of this program. Visit leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for some great deals to listeners of this show. In the meantime, lead on. 